chapter 11, 1 to 44. John chapter 11 gives to us the resurrection of Lazarus. This is the seventh sign or the seventh miracle that is recorded carefully in the Gospel of John. The first one was the turning of water into wine, which symbolizes eternal life. The last one is the raising of Lazarus, which symbolizes resurrection life. So my Christian life begins with the water into wine, with the life that Jesus Christ gives me, and it's consummated by that final resurrection when the Lord Jesus will give me a new body. See? The seven miracles cover, so to speak, the span of the Christian life. Now, this is the last one, and of course, it's the fifth I am. What is the significance of this miracle? Well, may I suggest three things. First, this miracle revealed Jesus as the master of life and death. This miracle answered one of the great problems of life. Uh, in my study, I've said upon it myself, I've come to the conclusion, and uh, most of you have heard me say this before, that there are only three great ultimate problems in life, spiritual problems. The problem of guilt, the unshakable sense of wrongdoing, the problem of the perversity of human nature, the inability to be what I ought to be and to do what I ought to do, and the problem of death. If a man dies, shall he live again? All three problems are raised in the Bible, and all three are answered in the Bible. Matter of fact, all three are raised by three questions. Job 25 how then can a man be right in God's sight? That's guilt. Romans 7, 24, who then shall deliver me from the body of this death? The problem of perversity. And Job 14, 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? The problem of death. Now, here is the answer to that great problem. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Secondly, this miracle is important, significant, because it led to the formal decision to put Jesus Christ to death and the formation of a plot. And that's given to us at the end of John chapter 11. Third, this miracle revealed Jesus as the Messiah who was to die for his people. Uh, and an unconverted man predicted something which he meant on one level, but which was fulfilled on another level. He said, Ananias said, it is expedient that one man die for a nation rather than the nation die. He meant it's expedient that this man die rather than the Roman government come down and put a clamp on us and take away our liberty. What he didn't know, didn't realize, that this man in a far higher, deeper sense, infinitely deeper sense, was going to die for all men as their Savior. Now, here's the outline, four things. The death of Lazarus, 1 to 16. The meeting of Christ with Martha and Mary. That's that M.M. Now, you know which one that is, don't you? All right, the meeting of Christ with Martha and Mary, 17 to 32. The raising of Lazarus by Christ, 33 to 44. And the consequences of this miracle, 45 to 57. All right, the first one, the death of Lazarus, John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Let's read the first three verses. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, 
the town of Mary and, and, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, sisters sent unto Jesus. That is, they sent from Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, over across the Jordan River to Transjordan, to Perea. They sent messengers there, and with this message, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now the event starts in Bethany. That's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha died. They were a family, two sisters and a brother. Lazarus is uh, uh, the, probably the Greek uh, for the Hebrew Eleazar, not the Lazarus of the parable. Sister was Mar his sisters were Martha and Mary. Mary is the woman who in John 12 anointed the feet of Jesus. Mary is not the sinful woman of Luke chapter 7. That comes across a lot of times in novels and in books, but that's simply not true. There's absolutely not one shred of evidence that this Mary of John 11 is the Mary is the woman of Luke chapter 7. That's pure hypothesis. It's nice. It sounds nice. It looks good. The only fault with it, it hasn't got one fact to support it. She's not the woman of Luke 7. This Mary is the one who anointed Jesus' feet, and that's going to be described in John chapter 12. Mary, of course, was quiet. She was reticent, more deep thinking. Her sister was Martha, and Martha uh, was more active and more outgoing. So Martha comes first to Jesus, and then Mary. Dr. Ironside had a magnificent sermon on the next chapter, chapter 12, on the three aspects of the Christian's life, one represented by Martha, who served, one represented by Mary, one represented by Lazarus. So the sister sent messengers and said, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. Notice how tactfully that presented. Uh, they don't say, Lord, come on. You've got to come now. <laughs> they see all the way through, there's a certain tact that Martha and Mary both display in their association with Jesus. So they don't say, Lord, you've got to come. See? They left the solution up to Jesus. They simply said, Lord, here's the problem. He whom thou lovest is sick. Now, however you want to handle it is up to you. And they laid this information to them tactfully. Now Jesus hears it, verses 4 to 16. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. What he meant was the final outcome of this is not going to be to death. He won't die. Now, obviously, he did die. He died for four days. Died for four days. His body was in the grave. But what Jesus meant was that he's not ultimately going to die. Of course, they didn't know that uh, he was planning to allow Lazarus to die and then later on for him to raise that. So he said this death is not the ultimate reason for this. It's not that he's going to die, but the ultimate purpose in this is the glory of God. I want to reserve that until we get to the end. The ultimate purpose of this sickness is for the glory of God. 
Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. That's to prepare us for verse 7, where Jesus said, let's go into Judea again. Verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, immediately Jesus left Perea for Bethany. <laughs> Didn't, did he? When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he stayed two days still in the same place where he was. You know, we all have a problem with that. We have some problem and difficulty in our lives. We ask God to do something, and he doesn't do it. He delays. God's delays are not necessarily a no. God always has a purpose in his delay. And here God, here Jesus delayed in coming. Didn't know why? Didn't understand why? Didn't ask why? Didn't ask why? The adversaries did, but he didn't. Now, some men of it, other liberals have come to this passage, they do all these passages, and said this is not natural to Jesus, so this never really happened. That's not true. Quite natural to Jesus. He was working on a plan. His plan did not, the plan of God didn't call for him to leave at that time. He waited. More than that, he knew he had to wait. He wanted to wait because if he had raised him 30 minutes after he had died, there would have been some suspicion about it. But he didn't. Waited four days. So there wouldn't be any question about the state of Lazarus. They would be sure that Lazarus had died. So he said in verse 7, therefore, after that, after he waited two days, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. Let's go right back to the place from which we left about a month ago, right back to the hot bed of opposition, right back to Bethany near Jerusalem, where my adversaries are the strongest. Let's go back there. Obviously, the disciples are reluctant. So they raise three objections here. They, there's a threefold reaction on the part of the disciples. First, a reluctance to go due to fear. A reluctance to go due to fear. Verses 8 through 10. His disciples say to him, Master, the Jews, that is the Jewish leadership, of late, recently, a month ago, sought to stone me. And do you even think about going back there? Jesus answered. Here's a great principle in life. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walks in the day, he will not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles, because there's no light in him. Now, the twelve hours of the day is a figure of speech for the will and plan of God. Walking in the 12 hours of the day means to walk in the will and plan of God. And secondly, to walk in the light here means to walk in the will of God. And Jesus is laying down, if I may state it in three simple propositions, Jesus is laying down these three things. Number one, 12 hours of the day, God has a definite plan for one's life. God has a definite plan for my life, Jesus is saying. It includes the time, 
Not now, but today. But now, not later. Includes the time. It includes the place. It includes the conduct that I go back to Bethany. And it includes my adversary. God has a definite time, place, will for my life. Secondly, to walk in this life, that is to walk in God's plan, means that one will not stumble nor be hurt by his adversary. Third, since I'm walking in the 12-hour day, since I'm walking in the will and plan of God, I will not stumble and my adversaries cannot hurt me. I am immortal till it comes time for me to die. Twelve hours a day, that's the will of God. I walk in that twelve hours. I walk in the will of God, in the plan of God. Nobody can touch me until the hour of my death. I remember hearing years ago testimony of a man by the name of Bill Wallace. I heard this indirectly. I heard it from somebody who heard it. Bill Wallace was a missionary uh, uh, sent out by the Southern Baptists in China. And he planned to go back to China. This is the period after World War II when the communists were coming strong into China, taking it over, and eradicating all Christians. You remember, perhaps, we had one man here from Memphis who for a year was held by the Chinese communists in China. His wife came out. His wife was Betty McGee, and they came here. They were associated here with the Plymouth Brethren, and uh, his children were here in school. But John McGee decided to stay, and he stayed, and they kept him one year in prison in China. Bill Wallace, about the same time, was planning to go back to China as a missionary. He spoke in Fort Worth. Open it up for questions when his message is over. One man stood up and said, Mr. Wallace, are you not afraid to go back to China? It's terribly unsafe in China. You probably, possibly may never come out alive. Bill Wallace said very succinctly, I am safer in China in the will of God than in Fort Worth outside the will of God. And he wasn't referring to the way they drive. See, a man's safe inside the will of God. Man is immortal in the will of God until the hour on God's calendar for his death, for his leaving this world. That's what Jesus said. Go back to the adversary. No, that's too great a gamble. Jesus was saying, no gamble at all. If I'm walking in the will of God, and that's his plan, then I'll go back there. I'm safe inside the plan of God until the hour that I shall die comes. Then my life is over, and my ministry is over, and I'm ready to die for sinners. The only question that I have to face and that you have to face is simply this. Am I in the will of God? Man that's in the will of God is saved until the hour of God's appointment comes. And Jesus laid down this great principle. The second, the second uh, reaction of the disciples, the first one is reluctance to go due to fear. The second one is a protest 
there's no need for it. Verses 11 to 15. These things said Jesus, and after that he says unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. Well, the disciples didn't know what he meant by the word sleep, as a lot of Christians don't today. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall recover. By that they meant he's had a, apparently had a high fever. And the fever subsided, and he's now able to sleep. If he can sleep easily, then that means the fever subsided, the disease is gone, he's on the road to recovery, there's no need for us to go back there. Let's not go. Protest. Let's not go. There is no need. So Jesus had to correct them. He said, verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he spoke of taking of rest in sleep. So Jesus said to them very plainly, since they were so obtuse, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. I am glad that he died for your sake, for the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now, you know that one of the New Testament words for death, especially the death of a believer, is sleep. Matter of fact, we get our uh, English word cemetery from the Greek word for sleep. Koimaterion, koimaterion, cemetery. And the New Testament uses the word sleep for the death of a Christian. Uh, just as, a, um, as uh, in death, the body is, as in sleep, the body is laid out, stretching. Though I've seen people sleep in chairs, you know. But normally, it's laid out flat, see. So in death, they're laid out flat. And just as a person is roused from the sleep, stands up, so in the resurrection, our bodies will stand up. Now, when the Bible speaks of sleep, and the Bible says that death is sleep, and it does, it doesn't mean the soul. That is what the Seventh-day Adventists believe. They believe that between death and resurrection, the soul is unconscious, it sleeps. And they base it on the idea that... Uh, if the soul, the soul, the mind, the soul, the mind, the same thing, the soul, the spirit, mind, conscience, will, all the same thing, simply different functions of the one immaterial need, that when the mind, soul, is not associated with the body, then it can't function. If I get in a wreck and my brain is damaged 50%, then my mind only functions 50%. And if I get in a terrible accident, my brain is terribly damaged. The brain, the material part, is damaged severely. Then my mind can't function. So if the mind, if the brain goes into the ground and has no, the mind therefore has no instrument through which it can function, therefore the brain can't, the mind, now, you know what the mind is. The mind is the immaterial part. I don't think with the brain. I think with the mind. 
And when that mind and brain are separated, and the brain goes in the ground, then the mind cannot function because it has no instrument through which to function. That's, that's the basis for the denial that the soul after death is conscious. And the Seventh-day Adventists have that as one of their primary theses along with some other groups. What is our answer to that? Our answer to that is that one, first of all, that, well, first of all, that God doesn't have a brain. He has a mind. Do you believe that God has a body? Well, I hope not. God is pure spirit. God is a spirit. He has no body. Pure spirit. You can't hold on to God with a hand. He's not made up of matter. He's pure spirit. Yet, the Bible says, who has known the mind of the Lord? God has a mind. He thinks and wills. He has an infinitely wise mind. He plans. But he doesn't have any gray matter. What about angels? Do they have bodies? No. Do they have minds? Yes. Yes, they think. They worship. That takes the mind. More than that, the Bible tells us the saints in heaven, without their bodies, are worshiping God. And worship takes the mind, not necessarily the brain. So the saints who have died, Peter and Abraham, perhaps your loved ones, are in the presence of God, worshiping God. Their minds are active, probably more active than any of our minds here tonight. Their minds are active. And it's not necessary. But one of the New Testament words for death is sleep. Why do they mean sleep? Well, because just as you sleep and wake up, so the body's going to go down the grave not to stay there, but one day to be awakened by Jesus and reunited with the soul and perfectly redeemed both body and soul. So Jesus said he sleeps. And the disciples didn't quite catch that so he had to tell them plainly Lazarus is dead and then he says in verse 15 I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there because if I had been there I would have kept him alive you see the inference is there if Jesus had been there in Bethany he would not have allowed Lazarus to die you know there's um, some miracles are more powerful than other miracles. Some miracles of Jesus are more impressive than other miracles. The miracle of the, of the feeding of 5,000 was a tremendously impressive miracle. The opening of a man's eyes is a miracle. But nowhere as impressive as raising a dead man from the grave. You know, even today, you have some divine healers who alleged that they've opened blind eyes. They might get away with it. But you take one out to Memorial Cemetery for the man in the grave for a week and ask them to raise the dead. You know, usually the stories of these accounts of the raising of the dead by divine healers takes place in outer Mongolia where you have nobody to check up on it. You take them out to Memorial Cemetery, they won't do it. 
the raising of a man from the dead. So Jesus said, I'm, why do you think he was glad? I'm glad that Lazarus died. You think Jesus was glad that Lazarus died? You think he was glad simply in the fact that he died? Think he was glad because it cost more grief to Martha and Mary? I don't think so. But he knew that through this miracle, tremendous miracle, raising a dead man, that some men would come to faith in himself, which they did. And the disciples would be nurtured in their faith and their confidence in the Lord. And that it would redound to greater glory to God. So he said, I am glad that I wasn't there and that Lazarus died. Because in the conclusion to all this, there's going to be greater blessings for Lazarus, for his sisters, for the disciples, and for the Lord, for God himself, more glory. So, Jesus said, I am glad I wasn't there, which means I am glad that Lazarus died. You ever hear anybody say at a funeral, I am glad? <laughs> well, you know, they sing that song, I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, uh, like a man, you know, that... Um, said that uh, he, he didn't believe in sinless perfection. Man said he didn't believe in sinless perfection. Except one person. Who was that? My wife's first husband. <laughs> but Lazarus died. Jesus said, I am glad he died. I'm glad. That's tremendously interesting, isn't it? I'm glad he died. Why? Because he's the will of God will of God. Therefore, I'm glad that the will of God was done. And I rejoice in it. Do you know, my friend, when you uh, read and you perhaps have the writings of the pagans in the second and third century, pagans, you will discover that one thing impressed the pagans, and they couldn't account for it. And it comes through in more than one writing, and it's this. They were impressed by the fact that when a Christian lost a loved one, a child, a son, or a daughter, a husband, they rejoiced and thanked God. And the pagan atheist writers could not understand it. They couldn't understand two or three things. They couldn't understand why the pagans, why the Christians, lived moral lives. Couldn't understand that. And they couldn't understand why the Christians conducted themselves with honesty and integrity when they could do otherwise. And more than any of those, they couldn't understand why a Christian rejoiced and thanked God in the hour of death. Would you rather have a loved one taken at 50 in the will of God or at 70 outside the will? You mean I get 20 years? Yes, Hezekiah did. He badgered God and badgered God and badgered him. God accommodated himself, gave him 15 more years. You know what, you know what ended, what, what was the result of that? Pardon? Manasseh and something else. During those 15 years, he sold the vessel of the temple 
to the Babylonians. They sent a little deputation, 15 or 20 men over there. And, and he showed them the vessels of the temple. And they wrote that down while he wasn't looking. They wrote down about all those vessels. About 100 years later, Babylon came over, swept in the city, raised it, burned it down, and robbed the temple. And where do you think those vessels came from that they were drinking whiskey out of? On the night that Daniel said and interpreted the handwriting on the wall. Where did they get those vessels? Over yonder on in Jerusalem. How come they got them? Because Hezekiah badgered God for 15 more years. Got it. Got it. But it led to tragedy and heartache. Jesus said, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad Lazarus died. Because the ultimate outcome of that is going to be. Now, that doesn't mean we ought to pray, start praying that our husband or wife will die. See, that doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. I think that we are responsible to pray in the will of God, if it's your will, that you'll restore the loved one. I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong in prayer telling the Lord what I would like, as long as I don't try to dictate to God. This is my human aspiration. This is what I would like, Lord. I'd like you to restore me to health or to restore a loved one to health. But whatever is your will, help me satisfied with that. Jesus said, I'm glad, glad to have this place. So, verse 16, the third response, Thomas the pessimist. One was a, one was a, a reluctance to go, one was a protest, here's the third one. Thomas said, who was called Didymus, unto his fellow, well, let's also go that we can die with him. See, here was the martyr complex, Thomas. All right, the second thing we got is the meeting of Jesus with Martha and Mary, verse 17. Verse 17 to 30, 32. Meeting of Martha and Mary with Jesus. Then when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had lain in the grave four days already. Now, he waited two days. It's a little hard to figure out the chronology here. Probably took him a day to take that message from Bethany up to Perea. Then Jesus waited two days. Then on the following day, the fourth day, he made his journey back to Bethany. Probably Lazarus died while the messengers were taking the message from, from Bethany to Perea. So when the messengers got there with the message to Jesus, Lazarus had already died. And, of course, Jesus knew that. And that's one reason why he wasn't afraid to wait two days. He knew that Lazarus had already died. So now he gets back, he waits two days, and now on the fourth day he goes back there and takes place on the fourth or fifth day after that news first left Bethany. Verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had lain in the grave four days already because the Jews buried them buried the dead on the day they died. They didn't wait 24 hours or 36 hours. They didn't have the modern methods of preventing decomposition or preventing an odor, so they 
disposed of the body immediately, buried them on the same day, although that for seven days. Third, to blessing. First, the claim. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection life. Jesus didn't say, I give resurrection and I give life. He does, but that's not the way he said it. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Why did he say, I am and not I give? Because life is bound up with Jesus. I don't get it somewhere else. Don't get it in the church. Don't get it in baptismal waters. Don't even get it in Mid-South Bible College. I only get it one place, and that is in vital union with Christ. What does 1 John 5, 12 say? He that has the Son has life. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. So life is bound up with Jesus. Getting life is not being baptized or getting in the church, which I ought to do after I'm saved. But getting life is a proper relationship to Christ, trusting him. He that has the Son has life. I am the resurrection of life. I am the resurrection. Resurrection. New body. Then, secondly, I am the blessed life that follows the resurrection. Great claim. I am the resurrection of life. Secondly, a condition. What is that condition? Well, look at verse 25. I am the resurrection of life. He that keeps the law. Is that what it says? He that believes, and it's the present tense. He who is a believer in me. The condition to life is trusting Christ. I get life not by joining a church, not by enrolling Mid-South Bible College, not by keeping the law, I get life by believing in Jesus Christ. That's the condition. You say, you know, you underscore that a whole lot. You talk about that a whole lot. Yes, I know I do. And the reason I do is because I know that a person can be reared all of his life in the church and memorize verses and be baptized and be able to recite the creed, the Apostles' Creed, and perhaps do it on Sunday morning, and never have established a saving relationship to Christ. And a saving relationship to Christ is simply believing, confiding myself, casting myself on the all-sufficient Savior. That's the condition. Third, the blessing. Now, when you look at it carefully, Verse 25 and 26, two blessings, two blessings. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, the word live there in that context means raise. He that believes in me, although he dies and his body goes into the grave, yet shall he live, yet shall he be raised. So there's the first blessing, and that's resurrection, the completion of redemption. The second blessing is verse 26, stated in the negative. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, he's not talking about the rapture there. I believe in the rapture, but he's not saying, whosoever lives, believes in me, when I come, won't die. 
What he's talking about when he says won't die means he won't die eternally. He won't perish eternally. Whosoever lives and believes in me, by that way, that suggests the only time I can believe on Jesus is while I'm living. No second chance after death. Whosoever lives and believes on me will not perish, die eternally. The moment Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, He that Whatever I say, he that uh, heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, but is already passed from death unto life. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no, no condemnation, no penalty of guilt them who are in the Christ Jesus. And that's what Jesus meant. Two blessings. What are they? Raised, my body raised, resurrection, and no condemnation beyond death. That means, look here, that means I'm facing death. That means in facing death, two things. Let me walk over here. This should have been turned on. For those who are listening by tape, <laughs> you will understand that we're turning on the air conditioning because people are going to sleep. So maybe that'll work. And do you feel it? Is it starting to come? I feel it already. It's getting a little warm in here. Now, what Jesus is promising, if you look up here, not at the tape condition, air conditioning, what Jesus is promising is two great things. I'm facing death. I face death. I ask two questions. First, is there life beyond death? And secondly, if there is life beyond death, what are my chances with God? That's what Shakespeare was after, you know, when he said, to die, to die, perhaps to wake again, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to wake again. I, there's the rub. What is the rub? Not to sleep, not to die. That's not the rub. The rub is to wake on the other side and find oneself unprepared to meet God. So I hear two great issues when I find when I face the grave. Here are two great problems trouble me facing death. If death was a period, then I wouldn't have to worry. If death ended all, then I wouldn't have to worry. I could live like the devil. I could indulge every sensual appetite, nothing beyond. I face two problems. One, is there life beyond the grave? Will my soul continue and be raised, joined to this body? And secondly, if there is, what are my chances before God? Am I ready to meet God? Will I stand before the great judge unprepared? We see what Jesus is saying. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'll answer both of those. 
If a man die, though he, he that believes on me, though he die, yet shall he be raised again. That's the answer to the first one. And he that liveth and believes on me shall never die eternally. Will not perish. You won't have to face the unprepared on the other side. Here is probably the greatest, most profound statement on life after death in a, succinctly in all the Bible. Tremendous passage and a tremendous claim. And the fifth I am in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Then what did Jesus say? Yes, and do you, do you, believest thou this? Remember reading a story, oh, probably 25, 30 years ago, about a group of soldiers stationed in England in World War II. They were stationed in a village. And uh, about, I suppose, about uh, six, 500, 600 airmen stationed outside a village. They were stationed there for a couple of years, at least over a year. And the villagers in England had been very kind to the men on this airbase, had entertained most of them in their homes. They got orders. They knew not precisely what they were, but they got orders to move out of the village. And as a matter of fact, some of them knew that they were moving to D-Day. Some of them knew that they wouldn't be alive come another year or come another month. So before they left, the villagers decided to hold a great banquet in honor of these, uh, in honor of these men. And they assembled in a great hall and had a great, uh, had a meal and a banquet that night, several speeches, and the mayor of the village spoke himself and told the men how much they had appreciated them and how well they had conducted themselves while associated with this small town. And almost near the end, uh, the host said, uh, they asked the leading, the captain or the major, whoever it was, to say a word. He got up and said a word, spoke for a few minutes. He wasn't a preacher, so he just said a few words. <laughs> spoke briefly, and uh, he ended by saying, you know, he said, that you've been most kind to us, most courteous, most generous. You've taught us how to live. Can anyone tell us how to die? Of course, the hall was silent. Silent for three or four minutes. The young lady stood up, came forward without any accompaniment, apparently a trained singer, began to sing, I know that my Redeemer liveth. That, my friend, is the ultimate solution. And if you go to a funeral, as you have, you stood beside the tomb of a loved one, or if it's your responsibility to comfort loved ones in the hour of death, here is our great solace that the grave doesn't end at all. That to the answer to the question of Job, if a man dies, shall he live again? Jesus said, I am the resurrection life. He that believeth in me, though he dies, Yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me 
shall never die, perish eternally. Believest thou this? Mary said, verse 27, Martha said, Martha said, look at verse 27, Yea, Lord, period. Yes, I do believe that. Without any hesitation, yes, Lord, I do believe it. And, Lord, I believe, I believe it, because I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, who should come into the world. See, she's really answering two things. First, you believe what I said, I am the resurrection. Yes, Lord, I do. More than that, Lord, I believe it because I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, who should come in this world. That is to say, I believe your word because I believe your person. Because I believe you are God Almighty, then I believe you speak the truth. wouldn't fool me. Therefore, I believe what you have said. So, verse 28, the next meeting, the meeting with Mary. When she had so said, she went away and called Mary her sister, secretly, privately, saying, The master's come. He's out yonder a mile or so away from the village, and he's come. And he wants to see you. So as soon as Mary heard this, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now, Jesus has not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then, who were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, thinking that she was going to the grave, and they wanted to go to the grave with her to console her. She goes to the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, now we come to the third thing, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping who came with her, he groaned in the spirit. That is, he groaned silently. Well, it was probably audible audible, and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid it? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. So he came and saw, and Jesus wept, wept at the sorrow that Martha and Mary were undergoing. See, he, he allowed Lazarus to die, but he wept at the sorrow that came to the family. This teaches us the human sympathy of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God, yes, but we believe that Jesus is also a true man. We believe that Jesus is both true God and true man. As true God, he's infinite. He's infinite. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew that Lazarus was going to be raised. He knew all that as God. But as a man, as a true man, he genuinely entered into the human experiences of life, the non-sinful human experiences. So he knew what it was to be distressed. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to be an orphan boy and to be a home in a home where he had to be the breadwinner. He knew what it was to suffer the unbelief of his brother right in the home. He knew what it was to be discouraged. He knew what it was to suffer the mockery of friends. He was touched with all of these things. He endured all these testings that we endure. Therefore, Hebrews says, 
We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tested as we are. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy for past mistakes and grace for future responsibilities. Jesus wept. The Jews said, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, The unbelievers, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused even this man should not have died? If he opened the eyes of the blind, why did he stop this man from dying? That's, you know, the old atheist uh, problem of suffering that the atheists raised so often. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, comes to the grave. It was a cave. <clears throat> and there was a stone laid against it, not upon it. They didn't bury people down in the grave normally. They buried them in the side of, of mountains in a cave. Here was the uh, rock, and they would hew out a place in the rock, a deep recess in the rock, put ledges inside the rock, lay the bodies bound in, in clothes, lay the bodies on those ledges. Then they would go outside and usually put dig a rut. Then they would put a stone framed like a, somewhat like a coin is framed, only a large one. And they would roll that stone in front of the mouth of the cave. And that's what the women came to in the grave of Jesus, and that's what they're saying, who's going to move away the stone from the front? So uh, Jesus came to this cave, and inside the cave, that is a rock-hewn place, hewn out by human hands, no doubt. There was a stone up against, not on top of it, but up against the, the cave. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks. That is, his body is decomposing. See, she really didn't believe he was going to raise him. So she said, Lord, please don't open it. For he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people who stand by, I said it, that as I thank thee, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Why did he cry with a loud voice? Well, probably to speak with authority. And he said, Lazarus, as you know, the old saying is, if he had said simply, come forth, they'd all come forth. So he had to identify him. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a cloth or a napkin. Jesus said to him, Luke, and let him go. So we finished the story. Let me make a few concluding observations, and then I'm going to save the rest of the observations until next time. Want to notice a couple things. Now, when you look up here, uh, someone's going to ask the question, so to preclude it, if 
Douglas was uh, bound in these clothes, how'd he get out? Well, probably one of two things. I don't think that Jesus performed a second miracle here. Don't believe that he resurrected or raised Lazarus and at the same time performed the miracle of enabling him to walk bound tightly. He was either bound individually, separately, the arms and the legs, or else he was bound loosely so that he could walk with those grave clothes on and with a turban around his head. So Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Notice two things that we see. Number one, notice that Jesus Christ did what he could do, expected the disciples to do what they were responsible to do. And that's a very important lesson. That's why I don't quite believe that little slogan that goes around, let go and let God. No, no. Jesus did what only he could do. What was only what he could do? Raise Lazarus from the grave. But he didn't do what they could do. What could they do? First, roll away the stone. Second, take off the grave clothes. He did what only he could do and expected them to do what they could do. You say, what do you mean? Well, uh, you know, I sometimes run across a student or somebody will say, well, now, uh, I need a job, and I'm asking God to give me a job. You are? Yes. Are you out looking? No, I'm just asking God. See? No, no. God expects you to do all that you can to get that job then he's going to undertake supernaturally to give you the job. He'll answer prayer. That same principle is, is, is found in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation, for it's God that works in you, both the will and the do of his own good pleasure. So somebody says to me, why do you need to work if it's God that works in you? Both to will it and to do it. If God's going to will it and do it, why do you need to work? Well, I'll tell you why. He said to. And you don't need any other reason. See? Now, do you know what I'm driving at? You don't, do you? I can see you don't. You don't because there's a, there, there are two views that roll around in America today and roll around in this city. One view says, well... One view is a strong hyper-Calvinism, which says if God has ordained everything, then I don't need to do anything. Now, I happen to be a moderate Calvinist, but I don't believe that. I believe that God, I believe in election. I believe in predestination because the Bible speaks of election predestination. But I also believe that we must do what God has commanded us to do. What has God commanded us to do? He has commanded us to believe on Jesus. He has commanded us to pray. He has commanded us to carry the gospel to the far. Well, some, if God has his elect over yonder in South America, why go? The answer is God said to go. You don't need any other reason. When that great founder, the father of modern missions, 
William Carey, in about 1790, was it, 1795, stood up in a general assembly in Scotland and said, I'm going to India. An elder, a presbyter, stood up and said, sit down, young man. When God is ready to save the elect in India, he'll save them. He doesn't need you. That's a false, terribly false approach. Carey went. He was a cobbler. He mastered the language over there, the hard work, and opened the door to modern missions. This comes up in skull winning. People say, well, why witness? If God knows his elect, why witness? If he's going to save them, why witness? The answer is because God said to you. If God knows the answer to prayer, he does. He knows when he's going to give it to me, he does. Why pray? For one reason, God says to you. And he withholds the blessing until I do pray. I can't solve that mystery. But I'll tell you something. When I stand before Jesus Christ, He's not going to question me on my ability to solve the problem, but on whether or not I was obedient to his command. As that balanced, balanced Calvinist theologian, Charles Hodge said, the rule of a Christian's life is not the decrees of God, but the will of God. Has God commanded it? Then I'm to do it. Has God commanded me to believe in Jesus? Then I'm to believe in him and not sit back and wonder whether I'm one of the elect. God commanded me to pray, then I'm to pray and not say, well, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Prayer's no value. Has God commanded me to carry the gospel? Yes. Then I'm to carry the gospel, not to worry about the decrees of God. See? My rule of my life is the will of God, not the decrees of God. Now, I think you ought to study the decrees. But you ought to be 100% more concerned about God's command. Because when I stand in the presence of Christ, he's going to ask me about how well I obeyed his command. Secondly, secondly, I want to point out that the supernatural power God to raise the dead and to work miraculously, which is a fact, does not relieve me from my responsibility. The supernatural power of God does not relieve me from my responsibility. My responsibility is to work hard and to give a hundred cents on the dollar, and to do the best job by the grace of God at work or at church, and to witness for Christ, and to be involved in the local church, and to do all that I can in my work, in my business, in the propagation of the gospel. Well, if I don't, God will do it. He knows what he's going to do. He may well, but that doesn't excuse me. The Bible says, work out your own salvation. Work out the solution to your own problem. For it's God that works in you. Both the will and the do of his good pleasure. So Jesus, what did Jesus do? He raised Lazarus. Why? Nobody else could do that. What did the disciples do? They rolled away the stone. And 
They took off the grave clothes. What do you think? What do you think? Do you think that Lazarus would have come out of the grave if the disciples had not obeyed Jesus and rolled away the stone? What do you think? I'll leave that for you to answer. I'll leave that for you to answer. You think about it.